Would you open your copy of God's Word, whether it's on your device and you're following along with our version notes, or you've got one of these beautiful old analog Bibles, which I still prefer to read out of, uh, we're going to be reading together from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16 will be our text for today. As we continue our series entitled, Living in the Light of God's Invitations, we're thinking about what does it mean to recognize on a daily basis that the God of the universe is inviting us to come to Him in all of life's realities. And so we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, as once again we hear Jesus saying, Come to me. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is God's holy, inerrant, eternal, and beautiful word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. When Jesus invites us into his presence... We need to hear His voice in all the realities of life. So in the last few weeks, we've been seeing how the God of the universe is saying to us, come to me, not once you've cleaned yourself up, not once you've got your act together, not once you've already fixed all your problems and you've come to me with a desire to impress me with how well you've handled your life. Rather, over and over again, we're seeing that Jesus is saying things like, come to me when you're just worn out, when you're overwhelmed, you're you're overwhelmed by the burdens of life. I want you to come to me. Come to me not when you're all satisfied with how your life is going, but come to me when you're thirsty and you're recognizing that through my sovereign providence, I'm not letting you have all of the things your heart may desire so that you might want me more. Come to me thirsty. Come to me when you are hungry for life, when you recognize that all the pathways that this world offers that seem so life-giving are actually pathways to death. Come to me when you say, I am at the end of myself and I want life. Jesus is begging us in one sense to come to him And he's in the business through his spirit of drawing us to him. Now today, we're going to see how Jesus is leading us to these realities, right? Uh, We're going to see how the disciples made a very realistic mistake. And one that I think a lot of us have made and probably do make persistently. And then we're going to see how Jesus uses this moment of the disciples' mistake To do a couple of things, Uh, we're going to see him issue a very sharp rebuke, a strong corrective word. And sometimes we think that if somebody loves us, that they're not going to correct us, right? They're just going to let us keep doing the things we want to do. But that's not the nature of Christ-like love. And sometimes we need the God of the universe to speak not a harsh word, but a hard word into our lives, to correct us, to keep us from spiritual danger. So Jesus is going to issue a sharp rebuke to his disciples, and then almost just instantly, we're going to see how he corrected the disciples' thinking through an extraordinary invitation. So those will be our three main thought processes as we look at this. We'll look at the disciples' realistic mistake, why they made it, uh, why it makes sense, and then we're going to see how Jesus corrects our thinking and and theirs through a sharp rebuke, and then we'll see how he immediately flips that into an extraordinary invitation that all of us need to hear. Let's talk about this disciple's realistic mistake. 
Um, The passage we read, many people are familiar with it. Jesus is teaching out in the open fields. There's huge crowds around him. He's healing the sick. Uh, He's touching those who are, are hurting and in need, and he's ministering to them, and he's speaking great words of grace and truth over them. And the crowds begin bringing their children to him, specifically wanting Jesus to touch the children. Now, what they're longing for is a blessing. They're looking for the power that comes from this man, the holiness that comes from this man, the healing touch that comes from this man to be placed upon their children. And the disciples' response is to rebuke the parents. Basically, don't bother Jesus with the little ones, right? Now, there's a couple of ways that I think this passage gets misread fairly often. But let's try and take it apart uh, piece by piece. The parents are seeking Jesus' blessing on their children. Now, if you've had children, you know almost innately this desire. Don't you want good things for your children? Every parent I've met wants good things for their children. They want their children to have health and life and, and, and to grow and to have wonderful experiences and to be blessed and encouraged, right? Every good parent wants that for their children. And these parents want that thing. These parents wanted it so much in Luke's accounting of this same event, he actually specifies they're bringing even the babies to Jesus, to touch them. These aren't just the kids that can have a conversation with Jesus. They're bringing the babies to Jesus because they want the touch and power of Jesus to be upon their children. And we can understand that as parents. We can also understand why the disciples might not want the kids to come. When you've got crowd management as one of your duties... And Jesus is being pushed upon all the time. And there's lines of people wanting to be touched and healed. Do children stay in lines very well? (laughs) Do children sit quietly waiting for their turn? Do children... Uh, you know, do they put on their best clothes and come with their finest on and then don't, you know, refuse to get themselves messed up? Not most kids, right? Children are often messy, unpredictable. They're loud. They're disruptive. They don't follow the lines very well. And they may seem like their concerns are trivial. Hey, Jesus got important things to do. There's a leper to heal. There's a woman who has a a, a long-time critical illness that she needs Jesus to take care of. There's important religious teachers here who want to ask Jesus important religious questions. And these kids are just in the way. And that's realistic. Now, there's a way that you can read this passage wrongly. What you can begin to believe is that really the disciples are wrong because kids are these amazing, super innocent beings and that really we should all just, you know, want to be around kids and be all of us like kids in all the messy, unpredictable, loud and disruptive ways that children can be. Fortunately, Jesus, the author of Scripture, the living Word of God, has taught us through His Word several critical truths about children that help us understand His thinking. Number one is this, children are a blessing from God. In a society today, many times in our society, children are not seen as a blessing, especially if they're imperfect children. This week, Rachel was sharing with me a horrifying statistic that in the United Kingdom, 92% of children whose moms uh, test 
themselves before they deliver and, and, and the, they find out the child carries uh, uh, the possibility of having Down syndrome, 92% of those pregnancies are terminated. Or as a truly honest way of saying that is they murder 92% of the Down syndrome children in England before they're born. 92%. All children are a blessing from God. God alone opens and closes the womb. Scripture is so clear about this. Children are a heritage, a gift from the Lord of the universe. The fruit of the womb is a reward, the psalmist says. And in another psalm, we find detailed reality about how God views infants and children. Uh, The psalmist cries out, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, he says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Is there anything in this that looks like children are a problem? Children are something to be despised. Children are something to be devalued. Children, pregnancy is something to be avoided. No. Wonderful is the working of God. When he puts children into a womb, right? Uh, the, the, the psalmist goes on, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Who's doing the making? God's making every single child in the womb. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Uh, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Let that sink into our soul. Children are always precious image bearers of the living God created for His glory. Now that is true. Let me tell you another truth. Every single child you've ever met was born a sinner. They were all born with a sin nature because every child that Adam and Eve and all of their descendants conceived carried the taint of human sin. Every one of them, a born sinner and as soon as capable, will make a sinful choice. So we need to have a very clear understanding that the same God who created these beautiful children to image forth His glory knows their brokenness as well. In Psalm 51, the same psalmist who wrote the same passage that we just read in Psalm 139 says this about his mother's pregnancy. I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful The moment I was conceived, (laughs) I carried the weight of Adam's guilt. I carried the reality that as soon as I could make a choice, I would make a choice to rebel against the living God. And that is true of every child you've ever met. Now, why does this matter? It matters because when you're a disciple and you recognize, okay, yeah, kids are cute, kids are nice, kids may even be from God. Maybe even we have a theology of Psalm 139. You know, these guys had read the Bible too. They also knew these children could be mean, petty, hard, selfish, annoying, right? All of those things could be true too. And the disciples and Jesus understood this, that children are often foolish and need discipline to mature and to thrive into the human beings that God had created them to be. Because we live in a broken world, every child needs discipline. Now, I'm I'm speaking to all of you that are parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Hear me clearly. When you fail, to provide appropriate, wise, loving, careful discipline to your children, you lie to them about the nature of the living God. 
Because God disciplines His children in love. Now, let me be also very clear. Every child that is abused, when parents discipline out of anger and it turns into punishment, you've lied about God as well. You've lied to this child and said there's a God who's angry at you and he's acting out of discipline, not out of love, but out of his anger and his frustration and his irritation. And that's not God. Now, Scripture has multiple places it teaches us this, but just this is one. Proverbs 22, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Many parents need to recognize that. Children are not perfect, innocent, little tabula rasa, blank slates, empty, corrupted by a world around them. Yes, believe me, there's plenty of corrupting going on in the world, but just let a child get their own way all the time and you'll see what happens. Folly, foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child in a broken world. The rod of discipline drives it far from him. So, all of that is context for the disciples recognizing all of these realities. Man, you know that kid, the parents want him to to go up and touch Jesus, but I just saw him with his finger up his nose. And that little girl that they want to put in Jesus' lap, yeah, she looks all cute right now, but I just saw her hit a little boy. So the disciples are trying to crowd manage and recognize all of these realities, the same realities that you and I deal with whenever we are dealing with children. They're beautiful, precious, amazing gifts of God, but they need discipline and correction. And this crowd is overwhelming and the disciples just go, enough. So Jesus, though, responds with a sharp rebuke. And maybe we need to hear that rebuke as well. Now, Scripture is very clear here that Jesus' rebuke is, in fact, very sharp. It's one of the few places where you see that it says Jesus was indignant. Now, it's a good translation. Indignant is not merely frustrated or annoyed. Indignant is what you get when you realize there is a truth and a reality that does not reflect the way that God wants the world to be ordered and other people aren't living in line with that reality and it's about something with you. Okay, that's what's happening right here. So Jesus is indignant and he says, let the children come to me. Stop trying to keep them away. Do not hinder them. The language is very strong. No, stop what you're doing. What you've done is wrong. We need to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to the church. When churches build themselves around the convenience of the elderly, the pragmatic concerns of parents, when they build their realities around the idea that really children need to be seen and not heard, I want you and me to hear clearly Jesus would be rebuking us. And we need to hear what he teaches us across his word. Jesus understood that children with all of their imperfections and their sinfulness are intended to be treasured. See, here's the thing. You're not supposed to just value kids who are good and perfect and the kids who are doing what you want. You're to treasure children the way God treasures them, even in their sinfulness and in their imperfection and in their brokenness. This doesn't say to us that we're simply to value the kids who have their act together. We're to value the kids, all of them, in all of their various messinesses. Matthew 18.10 Jesus is recorded there as saying this, see that you do not despise or devalue, the word can be translated there, one of these little ones. And then he says something so interesting. He doesn't say this about a single adult. He says they have assigned angels. 
You know the concept of a guardian angel? We don't really know much about the angelic world. But here he uses a possessive form, and he says those children have angels assigned to them, and they all have a hotline to the Father. He doesn't say that about you and me. He says the children have angels assigned to them, and those angels have a direct line to the throne of God. So don't you devalue and despise them. Does that shock you? And let me just clarify again. He's not saying the kids who are good, the kids who are obedient, the kids who've professed faith in Jesus, the kids who read their Bibles, the kids who show up perfectly uh, doing all that their parents want and never not doing what mom and dad don't want. No, no, no. He's saying these crowd of children, don't you devalue them. Don't you act like you're more important than them. Don't you act like your preferences and desires count more than theirs. Treasure them. We need to do that. Not just treasure them. Jesus makes it very clear in this passage and in multiple places with how he interacted with children that we are to be in the business of deliberately welcoming them. And just, you're going to see this in multiple places. Just look at Mark 9. Just flip back a little bit here, you know, in this in, uh, from Mark 10 to Mark 9, and you'll see that Jesus is constantly actually doing this. Jesus is seeking out the kids in the crowd. He takes the children, and he goes aside from the parents and says, let's not bother mom and dad right now. No. Oh, that's not what he did. He took the child, put the child into the middle of the crowd, and wraps his arms around the child. And then he says, if you welcome a child, you receive a child in my name, you're welcoming me. Let the converse be apparent. Every child you reject is a rejection of Jesus. Is that shocking to you? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not just me, but the, him who sent me, the Father God. He says when we welcome children into our community of faith, when we welcome children into our discussions, when we welcome children into our reality, we are welcoming him and his Father. Church, let us hear well what this means. Why do we take so much time, put so much energy into having a children's gospel time in a church that regularly right now has, has three children? Because when we do this, we're welcoming Jesus into this place. We're to treasure and welcome children in all of their weaknesses and their imperfections. We're not just to welcome them, we're to bless them. Jesus was having the children brought to him for blessing, and we also are the extension, the hands and feet of Jesus to bless the children in this world. Matthew 10, 42, Jesus goes on to say this, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. If you go to a child in Jesus' name and even give them a cup of water, your reward in heaven is secure. That's how much Jesus values a simple cup of water given to a child. How much more so time spent in preparing to teach children God's word. Time spent laughing and playing, hanging out with kids in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, whether they are our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, or our neighbor's kids, or some kid we don't even know, 
recognize that part of the mission of the kingdom of God is to treasure and to bless children, and yes, to protect them. The church, historically, down through the ages, founded almost all of the early orphanages out of a conviction that they were called to protect the children who had no parents. And within the church today, we have a commission to protect the children. And too often, let's, let's be honest, in Catholic churches and Protestant churches and Baptist churches, rather than protecting the children, the places that should have been spiritual refuge have turned into places of abuse. Predators roam freely through the churches to abuse the children that are inside the protective gates of the church of the living God. How angry the father must be. How critical it is that we protect the vulnerable, the weak. Within our own denomination, we have the opportunity to deal earnestly and seriously with our past failures to protect children and create a pattern of protection for the future. In our business meeting today, I'm going to invite you to join us. We're going to send a group, hopefully of like 12 people, to Anaheim to our convention this summer, and we are going to be dealing with this issue. Why? Because Jesus says things like this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin and abused broken children have unbelief in the nature of God, they act out. They're overwhelmingly prone to forms of addiction and their own sexualized sins and their own brokenness and they're acting out of the abuse that they have received. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Not hyperbole. Go find a giant rock and jump off a cliff and drop into the depths of the ocean. It's better for you to do that than for you to cause a child to sin. Why? Scripture says things to parents. Fathers, don't frustrate your children too often. I have done that. I know. Unlike our Heavenly Father God, we run out of energy and time and wisdom, and too often we're unwilling to admit our weakness and to come to Jesus to fill us up in our empty parenting and grandparenting. I get it. But we need to hear these hard words of Jesus calling us to treasure and bless and receive and protect the children around us. And then Jesus wants us to understand that we're to become childlike. We're to become childlike ourselves. One of the reasons this whole conversation is happening is because Jesus is going to say things like this. He calls another child, has him put in the midst of him and says, I say to you, truly, that's Jesus saying, listen carefully. Unless you turn, the word, very important there, it's the word repent there. Turn. Stop being who you think you are and become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How critical is it for you and me to become like children. All of eternity is on the line. Now, we've already pointed out children are sinful. They're not innocent. They are often foolish. So Jesus is not saying be sinful and foolish and run around with your, uh, you know, like a, a chicken with your, your head cut off. He's not saying that. <laughs> He's not saying be foolish like a child. 
He's not saying be sinful like a child that's never been disciplined properly. So what is Jesus saying? Well, to that end, let's go to Jesus' extraordinary invitation, right? We've seen the, the disciples' realistic mistake. We've seen Jesus' sharp rebuke. We've heard those words to us. And now we come to this place where Jesus takes this in just a moment. He twists this around and turns this into an invitation for the disciples and for you and for me. So let's go back to 1014. Let the uh, Mark 10, 14, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To those who, to such means to those who are like them, belong the kingdom, uh, belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, let the kids come, and by the way, you should be like them if you want the kingdom. So what is it that Jesus is saying? He's certainly saying this, let's receive and trust in him like a child does. Um, Now, here's the picture I want you to to have. Uh, Any kid who's seen the advertisements or watched the movies or who's had friends who've gone, if you go up to them and you say, hey, (laughs) we're going to go to Disneyland, (laughs) Maybe they've never even been, but if they've heard, they've seen the shows, they've seen the TV, they've seen the advertisements and everything else, and, the, and, and you say, hey, we're going to go to the Disneyland, we're going to go to that big castle there, and you're going to get to experience that whole thing. What kid's going to turn that down? No kid's going to turn that down. Right? Because it's a good thing. It's a great thing. Kids love that. And then you walk them into that place and Disneyland, you say, hey, do you want to go to the castle? Yes, I want to go to the castle. Do you want to pull the sword out of the stone? Yes, I want to pull the sword out of the stone. You want to go ride that ride? Yes, I want to go ride that ride. You want to go fly Dumbo? Yes, let's go fly Dumbo. Kids love taking in all of that. And the more that you give them, the more excited they are. So here's the question that I have. Why is it that so many of us as Christians are so reluctant to receive the kingdom of God? Because Jesus is offering us a kingdom that's so much better. See, Disneyland, we all know that's not a real castle. (laughs) It's a set. (laughs) And those aren't real princes and princesses. And the sword and the stone's got to go back in for the next show. And the Dumbo ride will be over. Or you'll vomit. Whichever comes first. Jesus wants us to understand and have the enthusiasm, the reception, that when God says to us, I want to give you my kingdom. We should have the same spirit as a child. Yes, I want that. Let's do it. It's so amazing. That's why in verse 15, he says this. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Hear clearly what Jesus is actually saying here. As children are so enthusiastic to receive good and precious and amazing gifts from their parents, you and I must be eager to receive the fullness of God's kingdom. More kingdom. You guys know the the SNL skit, you know, more cowbell? No, not more cowbell, more kingdom. More kingdom. More of Jesus' kingdom in my life. More of Jesus' kingdom in this world. More of Jesus' kingdom forever. Jesus says, you need to have the orientation that a child has. Yes, I want all the good and great and glorious things that God has for me. And in fact, he says, if you don't have that enthusiasm to receive what I am wanting to give you, you get none of it. You get none of it. So here an invitation to start over. The gospel is always about an invitation to start over. Maybe you and I tend to default into the hearts of the Pharisees and religious leaders and think about whether or not we actually want this or that attribute of God's kingdom in our life. You have, an, have a chance to start over. 
That's what Jesus was trying to say to one of the great religious leaders of his day. In John chapter 3, he says, listen here, Nicodemus, your problem isn't that you haven't studied God's word enough. Your problem isn't that you don't have enough nuance and enough theological argument. Your problem is you need to start over. You need to be born again. You need to start over your heart and come to God with a new birth. And you need to receive the good news of God's saving love as the great and glorious gift that it is. Imagine waking up to the reality of the kingdom of God being handed to you on a platter and you go, eh, really, I'd rather have something else. The whole point of the gospel story is that Jesus has come to gift us that kingdom, to bring us back into right relationship with the Father, right? The whole point of Colossians 1, chapter 19, uh, verse 19 through 22 is this, that God has sent His Son in all His fullness to dwell amongst us in the incarnation and through Him to reconcile us, to bring us home to the Father's kingdom. Everybody whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he do it? By making peace by the blood of his cross. He died to bring you into the kingdom of God. And it's not because you and I deserved it. We were alienated from God, separated by our sin, hostile in our orientation to him. We were doing evil deeds. And Jesus died to reconcile us in his body of flesh by his death and to change us. The people who are holy and set apart, different from the world and blameless, not because we somehow washed away our sins, but because the blood of Jesus has washed us clean and, and, and above reproach because we've been covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't you want that? See, there's an inherently childlike attribute to the gospel that says, I'm going to give you something you could never deserve, never earn. And all you have to do is believe that it's true for you and welcome it into your life. And when you and I do this, we become a child. See, one reason the church should value and treasure children is because every one of us has become a child. Have you ever thought about the fact that the word child is chosen deliberately, like in John 1, 12. If you receive Jesus, if you believe in his name, he's going to let you become a child again. His child. His child. Think about it. Another word could have been used. They, they, you could become his offspring. No, no. His child. You get to become the children of God. No wonder the apostles picked up the pattern. Jesus often referred to them saying, children. Can you imagine saying that to a group of fishermen? Hey, children, bring me some breakfast. That's what he says, by the way, in one of his last conversations with them. And then the disciples picked it up. John would often refer to the church and he would say, little children. He's talking to old people, middle-aged people, teenagers. He says, oh yeah, don't, don't forget. When you came to Jesus, you grew young. So we receive like a child. You know why so many of us don't? Pride. We, we, here's the thing, no kid has earned a trip to Disneyland in reality, <laughs> okay? It doesn't matter, even if they were sold Girl Scout cookies or, or uh, which by the way, it's Girl Scout cookie week, so buy Girl Scout cookies because they're amazing, but, but 
it doesn't matter if you did it by mowing lawns. Somebody had to help you get the lawn mower. Somebody had to help you set up the, the cookie selling practice and all of these different things. See, children inherently know that they don't actually deserve what they're getting. And we're called to humble ourselves like children before Jesus. In fact, by the way, Jesus makes this explicit in Matthew 18, 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Part of that turning to Jesus is to drop away your pride. Stop thinking you've earned it. Stop being skeptical. Stop being cynical. Stop thinking you've got the world all figured out. Stop thinking that you have to figure it all out. Stop thinking that it's your job to fix a broken world. Jesus has already done all of it. So humble yourself. Go to him and go, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. And I don't have the power to do it even if I did know what I ought to do. So I need you. You know, Jesus prayed in some really weird ways. Sometimes we need to be reacquainted with the prayers of Jesus. This is one of Jesus' prayers. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus declares... This thanksgiving to his father. Father, I thank you that you took this ignorant fisherman, this goofy militia guy, this loyalist tax collector, none of whom had really studied the word of God, and I revealed myself to them, and you revealed me to them. And all the religious scholars can't figure out who I am. That's, that's my translation. But it reads like this. Jesus declares, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from wise and understanding and revealed them instead to little children. Yes, Father, for, to such was, or for such was your gracious will. Understand this. Jesus is in the business of showing up, not with the people who've got it all figured out, but with the people who don't have a clue. It is the Father's joy and pleasure and grace to show up and reveal himself to the people who know they don't have all the answers. And that's good news, I think, for you and me, right? That calls us to a place of dependence, doesn't it? Dependence. Children are dependent. Uh, we're born dependent. We, we can't feed ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We can't dress ourselves. The job of good parents is to teach kids how to grow up and learn how to do those things for themselves, right? But it's kind of messy. If you don't believe me, go hang out with the little Curtis kids for lunch. It's fun. You know, and, and I sat there with, with, with little Riley this week for lunch, and she was so earnest. She was picking up all this rice and getting it in her mouth. But, but you know, 75% went on the floor. It's okay. It's all right. She was enjoying the lunch. But you know what we forget? We're not so different. It's our job to depend on God. He shows up and provides. He shows up and gives us what we really need. He's the one who shows us how to grow up into Him. So Matthew 7, 11 reminds us there, Jesus reminds us there, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The whole Christian life is about radical dependence on God. We never outgrow our dependence on Him. Whenever we think we have, He will be sure to humble us and discipline us lovingly to remind us how desperately we need Him. And surely Jesus means this too, right? We're to imitate Him like a child imitates a parent. Children grow up naturally imitative, they want to be like their parents in different ways, which, by the way, it's one of the clues for where you might have messed up some in your parenting is when your kids say, I don't want to be like you at all. Right? But children are inherently imitative. 
Hang out with Jonah. Watch how he walks. Watch how he wants to pick up equipment here, how he wants to follow around and do all the things that the grown-ups are doing, right? Children want to imitate, and we should be longing to imitate Jesus like a child. Scripture even says, be imitators of God as beloved children. We should want to be like Jesus more and more. So when Jesus is saying, become like a child, he's saying, imitate me like a child. He's saying, long for my words of instruction and correction and direction so that you can grow up to be like me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 speaks of that. Notice, see, remember I said to you earlier, John referred to us as children. Peter says, like babies, <laughs> be like a baby. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, you may grow up into salvation. Now he's stretching the analogy here, but what he wants you to grasp is this, that we are as intimately dependent on the word of God as a baby is on the milk of his mother. But the goal isn't to stay there, it's to grow up, to look more and more like Jesus. We... Surely, Jesus meant this as well, that that to be a person who receives him like a child is to wonder at him and celebrate him like a child. You know, there's a striking moment in the life of Jesus as his life comes to a climax and he enters into Jerusalem on the final week, the religious leaders are rejecting him, but who's partying in the streets? It's the kids. In fact, they're really mad because the kids keep following him around, saying things about him. The chief priests, the scribes, the people who had it all figured out, they had all their religion right, they had everything great. They saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and what's their response to it? It's not to become like a child. No, because the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. This is the Messiah that has come to save God's people. The children are running around the temple singing songs about Jesus and the scribes who are seeing him do things that they know are impossible for an ordinary human to do. They are indignant. And what are they mad about? Do you hear what these kids are saying about you? See how backwards they are? Jesus says, have you never read Psalm chapter 8, verse 2 in the Greek translation of the Bible, the Septuagint, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Jesus said, don't you know, God created children to celebrate and worship and wonder Do you remember what it was like as a child to be amazed by something? Just to just be awed. Just be delighted. Maybe it was a a cake, a little dress and shoes, or a toy gun. Maybe it was a trip to Disneyland. Maybe it was something that happened in nature. And you just thought, this is the best. And you couldn't help but talk to all your friends about it. This is so cool. So when did we lose that about Jesus? I don't know if you know this about kids. They're really hard to shut up. When they get excited about something, they're going to talk and talk, and talk, and you go, I get it, I get it. So when we're not that way about Jesus, what does that tell us about the state of our soul? Well, I've grown up, you see, and I've been through some things. Yeah, that's the problem. Jesus is inviting you and me to go home and be like a child and wonder and celebrate. I had the privilege this morning of standing back there 
And uh, we've been singing Build Your Life every few weeks. And Jason, I wanted you to know something amazing. Uh, she doesn't read, but every few words. That little girl back there was singing out Build Your Life this morning. Children inherently know how to celebrate. It's adults who've forgotten how to wonder at the living God. So to become like a child means that. And finally, it means to rest. Now, I know that not all of us had good or perfect parents. Some of us maybe had really bad experiences with our parents, or maybe we lost our parents. But for many of us, we recognize what it felt like to rush into the arms of a loving parent, be caught up in their arms, and feel so safe, so connected, so treasured, that this deep and profound sense of rest came upon us. And we could just be... And whether you had it in this world or not, the invitation of Jesus is to rest in His blessing and His love. What's the last thing we see Jesus doing right here? He takes the kids in His arms. Oh, what that must have felt like. To have the Son of God enfold you in His arms take you tightly and squeeze you and say, it's okay, child. You're safe. You're loved. You're delighted. The living God finds joy in you. That's the blessing. And every one of us can have that through the work of Jesus. That's the invitation of Jesus. To come and rest in His arms, to give up our spiritual striving, our sinful skepticism and unbelief, our hardness of heart, but to simply rest in His arms and know that He's got it. And we are treasured. Why don't we pray and ask God to bring us to that place today? Oh, Father God, bring us now into your arms. I pray for every person present here today that tonight, if not sooner, they would be able to close their eyes and know what it means to step into your arms and to feel your embrace and to know that they are treasured and valued and loved there and that all they have to do is just receive your goodness and grace perceive, given to us through, through, through your Son. Oh, Father Strip away from us our sinful skepticism and pride and selfishness and fear and anxiety. Those of us that are far from home, draw us to yourself. Do this by your grace and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.